You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. So, as we dive into God's Word today, I can either fly under the radar with this or just take it head on and head into it, so I'm just going to head into it. Today is my 48th birthday, and uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you, I appreciate that. In our world of social media, I've been painfully reminded I'm not going to slip by without acknowledging this somehow, so thank you for your birthday wishes. And probably like you, uh, there are a number of birthdays that, that stand out in my mind. Um, I married a woman in Jamie who um, every birthday in our family is an event. I mean, it is an occasion. And uh, those don't go by unnoticed. They're always a big deal. And Jamie has been a part of 32 of my 48 birthdays. Um, we were high school sweethearts and began dating when we were 16. And I'll never forget my 18th birthday. Um, I, uh, I, my birthday is the day before my father-in-law's birthday, and he went home to be with the Lord about five years ago. Really, really miss him. My birthday is always bittersweet because it reminds me that, you know, his is the next day, and, and he's with the Lord now. But our families, Jamie's family and mine, our families of origin, knew one another long before we started dating. Jamie's dad was an optometrist and had a couple clinics, and my mom was one of his office managers. So when we moved up to Portland, my mom immediately went to work in his Portland office, and uh, Jamie and I had a number of classes together and began dating. And all that being said, our families knew one another, liked each other. And so on my 18th birthday, a couple years into dating Jamie, um, I thought, you know, I'm going to surprise Jamie's dad. I, you know, I, I, I loved him, and he was like a second dad to me. He, he just immediately brought me into their family, just a, an amazing man of God, one of the most impactful men I've ever had in my life. And all that being said, he had a great sense of humor, and I thought, okay, I want to do some things to just surprise him. So Jamie told me that she and her parents were going to be going out to dinner the night before his birthday, which happened to be my birthday. So I thought I'd sneak over on this day some 32 years ago, 30 years ago, whatever. can't do math very well. I'm a pastor. And snuck over to his house to decorate it. And to my surprise, my mom and sister wanted to come along, which was a little weird, but I said, okay, you can come. So we got over to their house, and I happened to have a key to their house, don't ask me how, keyed in, and uh, was going into the entryway, and they had a light that you could turn on in the entry, like most entryways do, and I went in and turned it on, and nothing happened. Unbeknownst to me, they weren't gone that night. They were home, and knowing that I was coming, their, Jamie's dad had uh, killed the circuit to that light, so there was no way it was going to turn on. It was a total setup. And you're now getting a feel for more of my personality for those of you who don't know me, and many of you do know this about me, but I'm quite clueless. It's, it's easy to hide things from me. In fact, I'm still doing business with the fact that um, in, in celebration of me graduating from seminary a couple years ago, last year you surprised Jamie and I with the trip to Israel. It's a little concerning to me that a church this size could keep a secret that well. We were genuinely surprised, and part of that is probably due to I'm just kind of clueless about that stuff. But I was certainly clueless at this point in my life. No idea what was about to happen. My mom says, who was complicit in this and was a part of it, go a little bit further in and, and, and see if you could turn on a light in the main room there because the entryway went into this you know, main living area. So I, 
I snuck my way in there, and I'm feeling along the wall. Finally, turn on the light. Turn on the light, and here's a surprise 18th birthday party for me, <laughs> orchestrated by my wife. Here's 40 of my friends. I didn't even know I knew 40 people. And here's like 40 of my friends in this, in this crammed into this room. It was, it was epic. It was so much fun. And she completely got me by surprise. And one of the things that they did as a game there was they, they blew up these huge balloons and divided up into groups, and people were told to make an image of me on the balloon. Who is Jay to you? Represent that with the balloon. That was very interesting. Some images, you know, I could work with, and others I went, really? When people look at you, whose image do you reflect? What image do you reflect? By how you live your life, the choices you make, what you do, what you don't do, your relationships, and on it goes. How do you represent yourself? How do you represent Jesus? Whose image do you represent? We need to go here because this chapter in Daniel goes here. This is a major thematic element in this passage we're going to look at. So we need to do a little preparatory business with this before we actually get into the passage. And this idea of image is really a Bible-wide concept. And it is profoundly important that we understand what we're talking about when we say image. And really to set this, we need to go all the way back to the book of beginnings in the book of Genesis, where it's talking about God creating, and it says this in Genesis one twenty-seven, in particular, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Men and women, humanity, we are created in the image of God. That's really cool. What does it mean? What does it mean to be a Mago Dei, image of God? This is some of what it means. It means that we have a mental capacity. We can reason. We can choose. Just like God, we can create. It means we have a moral capacity. We have a conscience. We can determine right from wrong. Most of the time, hopefully. Emotionally, we have emotions. We can appreciate beauty. We can love. We have a relational capacity. We are created for community. We're created for fellowship, relationships between brothers and sisters in Christ. This is some of what it means to be made in the image of God. But because sin and brokenness has entered the world, because Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, and as a result, sin enters the world, death enters the world, decay enters the world, disease enters the world, Natural disasters enter the world. Brokenness enters the world. It permeates the heart of every single person alive. It it permeates our lives. We are broken. This image of God has been broken. God makes us in his image, and in our brokenness, we try to make him into ours. And therefore, we oftentimes settle for brokenness in our lives instead of what God always intended for us to have. And really at the heart of the gospel is this reality that God is repairing everything that is broken, culminating in his fulfilled promise of Jesus coming, dying on a cross, rising again to new life, breaking the power of sin and death, and beginning the process really of God 
repairing and restoring and redeeming everything that's broken. The world and everything in it, including you and me. So that's why it's so important that we understand when we begin to read this passage how significant it was and how significantly broken it was that King Nebuchadnezzar built an image of himself. And why that was such an affront to God. We don't need to build images because God's made us in his image. And that's what we're designed to reflect and that's really who we're called to be is to reflect his image. And so now we can begin to understand why this was such a significant affront to God and why it's an affront to God when we spurn his love, spurn his grace, spurn his truth and begin to live life on our own broken terms and settling for less than what he wants for us. And it goes all the way back to the original question we started with here, whose image are we reflecting? Daniel chapter 3. Here we go. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. In some translations, it says statue, and that's what this is. It's an image. It's a statue. We don't know if it was literally a statue of the king. Probably so, but we don't know that definitively. It could have been a statue of one of his many gods. All that being said, it's an enormous statue. It's 90 feet tall. If, if not completely gold, at least overlaid in gold. And if you were with us last week, we know where the king got this idea. Because in chapter 2, Daniel interprets this dream of this giant statue that the king had. And remember, he was told that, Daniel told the king that the head of the statue, which was pure gold, was him. And so in his brokenness, this king decides to build this image of himself. And then he invites everybody who's somebody to come be a part of the dedication. All the leadership of the kingdom are invited to the dedication of this image. And it goes on to say, the herald loudly proclaimed nations and peoples of every language, this is what you were commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. What's the best concert you've ever been to? The most amazing performance you've ever seen? If you think back to that with me, and there, there are things that I, my mind immediately goes back to, there's this feeling of electricity in the air, right? There's this anticipation, there's this excitement, this is really going to be cool. The way this story is being set up is that's exactly the atmosphere here. This is a big deal. Everybody who is somebody is here. There's a huge band assembled to celebrate this with music. But there's some people noticeably missing as we jump forward in our story here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three compatriots of Daniel, who were exiled with Daniel and the people who were brought from Jerusalem, who were in the leadership, had been just recently promoted at the end of chapter 2 in, in leadership in the Babylonian Empire, they're not there, and their absence is noticeable. So some of their critics come forward and denounce them. And in the original language, this literally says they ate the pieces of them, which in our vernacular we probably construe as they spit them up and chewed them out, even though they weren't there. Viciously belittled, 
criticized, attacked, denounced them and called this attention to the king. And look what they go on to say. There are some Jews whom you set up over the affairs of the province of Babylon and you wonder how that was said. There are some Jews who you set up over the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who paid no attention to you, your majesty. True or false? False. Patently false. He just promoted them because they're so effective and such great administrators in his empire. They worked hard and diligently and excellently for him. That is patently false. They neither serve you They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. True or false? True. That's why they're not there. You see, every lie, every effective lie, has at least a kernel of truth to it. And that's true here. They over-exaggerate. They lie to make their point, but their point is taken. These guys are not here. And the king, being gracious, unprideful, says, it's okay, I know where their loyalties lie. Furious with rage. Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing fire. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Is there a threat here? Not real subtle, is it? This king had the power of life or death over every single person in the Babylonian empire. You are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You were in his leadership. You have been torn from your land. You have been exiled in a foreign land. God has blessed you, gifted you, placed his favor upon you. You have risen to leadership now in this empire, and you are now surrounded by all your peers. Everything suggests with how this is written that this happened publicly. So the king is calling you out in front of everyone you respect, everybody you probably know, all of your peers, and your life is literally hanging on the line, and there is nowhere to run, there is nowhere to hide. It's game time. What are you going to do? You will lose your life if you respond wrongly in the eyes of the king. So how do they respond? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. It is an astounding statement and response on their part. Do you remember, for those of you who were with us last week, when Gary took us through chapter 2, and we actually looked at this um, the prior weeks, we looked at this in the serving series when we were in First Peter chapter 3. Do you see the assertiveness here with these men? They speak the truth. But notice how they do it. Remember, remember the reality that how you say something matters just as much as what you say. There is a time and a place to be assertive as a Jesus follower. And they model that here. But notice how they do it. 
They, they don't tell the king to, you know, go take a flying leap. They are respectful and gentle, as First Peter 3 talks about. The way Gary said it last week was hope, wisdom, and tact in a context of excellence. And that's what they did. They used wisdom and tact, but they did say no. And the king, being reasonable and rational and unprideful, said, oh, I get your point. Yeah, no. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's already been furious, but look at this. And his attitude toward them changed. In the original language, once again, we kind of miss this because there is a play upon words here. The same word for image, there's a derivative of that word used right here. And basically what it says is it's, it's poking fun at the king and kind of deriding him a little bit mocking him a little bit because here's this all-powerful king. He is king and in control of the largest empire at this point the world has ever seen. He is able to construct and build and develop this statue and he can control it and construct it and do it, but he can't control his own image because now he's so angry he has lost self-control. You ever had someone so angry with you that their features begin to get distorted or maybe, maybe you've gotten that angry? where someone's appearance literally begins to change because they are so angry. That's what's happening here. He is now losing control. He orders the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie them up and throw them into the blazing furnace. When we were in Israel last year, I I, I looked through my pictures and I didn't take any pictures of these and I'm not quite sure why, but we saw a number of furnaces, some that would have dated back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, And the reality with these clay furnaces was that they could get profoundly hot. Really, really, really hot. This is not hyperbole and this is not exaggeration. They could literally get so hot that they would incinerate whatever got close to them without getting inside of them and that's exactly what happened. It tells us that the men who threw them into the furnace were themselves killed by the heat of the fire and it says they fell into the blazing furnace probably they fell into it because it was built up against a hill and they just dropped them off the hill into the top and down into the furnace. But however it happened, into the furnace they go and they're done. Or are they? Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men? that we tied up and threw to the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Who was that? Mm, We're not quite sure. Was it an angel? Possibly. Was it the second person of the Trinity? Jesus before he was Jesus? Maybe. But what there is no doubt is this is the presence and representation of God. God is performing a class A miracle here, and he is saving their lives. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out! Come here! And so they do. And everyone gathers around, and it says the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was the hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. And now the king is going to have an amazing response that you have to come back next week for us to look at. i got to give you a reason to come back. We'll look at that next week. But what happens to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They get promoted. Because this amazing God obviously has his hand upon them, his blessing 
upon them. He's intervened on their behalf and has done this kind of miracle. If you and I were probably the king, you'd probably promote them too. But that's what happens. An amazing, amazing story. One of probably the most famous stories in the Bible, certainly a famous story out of the book of Daniel, and a lot here for us. So how do we step back from this and extract some things for us? Well, one is that when we face the fury and fire of a furnace, it exposes who we love and where our loyalties lie. These guys were under pressure. Can you imagine if that was you? Your life is literally hanging in the balance. Death is right over there in a blazing furnace. And you have to choose who you love the most. Do you love the approval? Or really, your life? more than you love the God that you follow? Are you willing to compromise to save your life? Most of us will never be put in this position. It won't be our life that's on the line. But you will daily be put in the position to have to decide, who do you love the most? God? Or fill in the blank? And we live in a culture that encourages us to compromise and to compartmentalize and to say, well, it's okay if I do this or I'm going to do this, but it's not okay or okay if I do this. We, it, it's like there's this disconnect between how we live our lives and the type of life that God calls us to. Because you see, Jesus himself said in Mark 12, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your your mind, all your strength. He wants all of us. How can God ask for that kind of love commitment from us? Because isn't that the way he first loved you? The gospel, the good news, the Christian life is always a response to what God has first done for us. He calls us to love this way because it's the way he loves us. But in our brokenness, we often settle for less. And one of the ways that our sin, our brokenness, manifests itself in our lives is we have a tendency to take good things and make them ultimate things. Or to put it another way, we have a tendency to take things and distort them and look to them for something they were never intended to be or to lean on them in a way we were never created to do or to allow them to control us in ways that ultimately harm and hurt us for the long haul. And one of the things that Christians have been doing for thousands of years, that millions of Christians are doing in this season and that we are choosing to do as a church family is to practice this thing called Lent. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about what Lent is and, and, and why you do it. But basically, in its essence, Lent is a way of exposing the things in our lives that we have distorted, the things in our lives that have too much control over us, the things that are good things that we have elevated to be ultimate things. And the idea of Lent is to use this season from Ash Wednesday, which was a week and a half ago, to Easter as a season for which you choose to give that thing up 
that is controlling you or has really too much control and emphasis in your life and you replace it with greater dependency upon God. Let me, let me be really explicit in how this works. Maybe for you, you struggle with people-pleasing, with seeking people's approval. Maybe you love the approval of others too much. And there are those times in your life where you are compromising on your love for God because love for people is more important to you. And so you think to yourself, I'm going to do business with this because this is a problem. And so for Lent, I am going to give up or at least expose the control that people-pleasing has in my life. So the way you practically live this out is when you feel the need to please others, when you know it will compromise on how God wants you to live or God wants you to do or not do, when you feel tempted to do that, you replace that with dependency dependency on God and you pray to God in that moment and say, God, I man, I really want to do this, but I really don't want to do this because I know it's not what you want from me. Will you help me? And what this practically does is it deepens your dependency upon God. It connects you through prayer to God. And really what you're doing in disguise, it's called fasting. Which Jesus himself said, when you fast in the book of Matthew. He assumes this is a spiritual practice. Folks, this is just a means to an end. It's not something you do to really show God that you're serious. And now he needs to listen to you. This is a way to expose what's broken in your life so that you can stop settling for that and have what God wants you to have. Lent isn't just about what you give up. It's more about what you what you get. Some of you might be thinking, well, you know what? Ash Wednesday was like a week and a half ago and it's too late. No, it's not too late. Do it. We have some bookmarks in the back that further explain this that have scripture readings that you can do each day if you choose to do that, but it's never too late to be a part of this. I want to invite you to do it because God calls us to love him unconditionally, but he also calls us to be loyal to him. Where do your loyalties lie? In your sermon notes, I've got Matthew 10, Luke chapter 14 there. I would encourage you to go look at these because these are those troubling passages where Jesus says, you must love me more than you love your father or mother or other relationships in your life. And we look at that and go, really? In fact, he uses the word hate. Unless you hate your mother and father and love me, things aren't going to work out so well for you. Well, what? Hate my mother and father? Well, what he's really talking about is loyalty. Your highest loyalty needs to be to him. And I have told you, and I firmly believe this, personally and as a pastor, if you can live out your relationship with Jesus, if you can love the way Jesus calls you to love, if you can be loyal to him in your family, you can do it anywhere. Rest is a cakewalk. Really? Well, not a cakewalk. But the proving ground for your faith, your relationship with Jesus and mine is going to start with your family. And that can be profoundly complicated because in our culture today, there are a number of you who have blended families, which is not a bad thing. But what it does mean is that the reality for you is you have stepmothers, stepfathers, expanded relationships, expanded people in the family. And I'll just, I'll tell you, Probably the primary area of relationship where I enter into people's lives as a pastor when they're struggling or hurting or trying to make sense out of things is with family. That, that is the number one area 
that I interact with people about in their lives. Family drama, family issues, family brokenness, family loyalties. Because it really is, in a sense, the proving ground for our faith. So will you be loyal to Jesus when it costs you something with your family? Boy, that's, that's the big leagues there. But if we're really applying this in its context, this isn't talking about loyalty from within with your family. This is actually talking about loyalty to God when the pressure comes without, outside. What will you do when at school, at your job, wherever you spend your waking hours, besides your family, what will you do when it costs you to be loyal to and to love Jesus? For most of us, it won't cost us our life. But the reality is, Jesus said, in this world you will have stress-free relationships. Bosses who always understand you and give you more than ample vacation time. Teachers who will always reward your work and give you good grades. Health that will never leave you. Plenty of money in the bank. All the security you could ever want. Spouses who will always understand you and meet your every need. Right? No. Fill in the blank. Jesus said in this world, in the Gospel of John, you will have trouble. It's a broken world and we're broken people apart from Jesus. But the best part comes after that. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Does it cost you and me as a Jesus follower these days to be a Jesus follower? Are we ever criticized or attacked or belittled? Do you know as Jesus followers, if we truly love Jesus and are loyal to him, you are committing a cardinal sin in our culture. Do you know what it is? You are intolerant which is a cardinal sin in our culture, the way our culture brokenly defines tolerance. Because you will speak the truth in love. And that's exactly what we're called to do, just like Jesus did. And therefore, you're going to take shots. You're going to be called intolerant, a bigot, a hater. And in this incredible world that we live in right now, we have this thing called social media that was just... I mean, it was just unthought of 20 years ago, right? And it's amazing. We are more connected to people than we ever have been before. I mean, it's a, it's a remarkable time of life to be living. The ways we can connect and communicate and have relationships, I mean, it's, it's really phenomenal. We are more connected than ever. We are more exposed than ever. If it wasn't a challenge to navigate the relationships in your life. Now, any person with any type of electronic device that can access the internet can tweet about you, can Instagram about you, can post about you, can Snapchat about you, whatever. And now you can be attacked, belittled, criticized, slandered in ways that were undreamed of 20 years ago. So will you be loyal to Jesus when it costs you there? I mean, I feel for our students. Man, are they on the front lines of this? Elementary, middle, 
high school, young adults. You not only have to navigate the complexities of relationships and what it costs you to be a Jesus follower in person, you you also have a social media presence. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. But the reality is when we face furnaces like that, though, God uses those to refine and deepen our faith. And just so we're on the same page, a working definition of faith that we've used here is, is this, that faith is believing that whatever God says can absolutely be trusted. There are other ways you can define faith. There's other dimensions to add to that, but that's at its essence. Will we take God at his word? So, will you? Do you believe that God refines and deepens our faith in the furnace. None of us want to go there, but when we do find ourselves there, do you believe that? Because God says it's true. In Romans 10, excuse me, Romans 8, 28 through 29, it says this, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Unfortunately, what a lot of people do is they don't go on to verse 29. And verse 28, in many ways, is diluted of its power and promise unless it's read with and understood in light of 29. Look what it goes on to say. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the what? To the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Folks, what this promises is that God will use everything in your life and mine, including the furnaces, including the times you're belittled, criticized, hurt, slandered, attacked to make you more like Jesus. God does not waste pain if we will let him use it in our lives. That is hugely significant and hugely important because God gets it. Do you realize that Jesus understands? He gets it. He knows what it's like to be unfairly attacked, slandered, criticized, lied about, belittled, devalued. Hebrews tells us that he is our great high priest. He represents us to God. He represents God to us. And that we are to hold firmly to the faith we profess in him. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But rather... Oh, we got stuck there. Can you advance that for me, Aaron? He is able to empathize with our weaknesses because he's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need because it's so easy when we're criticized, attacked, belittled, devalued to go right back at that person tweet right back at them, post right back at them, or if it's in person, go right back at them. But that's not what Jesus did. And Jesus empowers us to love and live the way he does and did. But some of you might look at this and say, but you know what? This story has a happy ending. God showed up in the furnace and he rescued them. It doesn't always play out that way. I'm in a furnace right now. God's not rescuing me. But there is a reality that we have that is spoken to in this very passage. 
And it's grounded in this, that Christianity is the only religion, the only worldview that teaches that the one true God of the universe not only suffers for us, as Hebrews just talked about, but he also suffers with us. Let me show this to you and where this hope comes from in the passage. Look how they respond to the king when he says he's going to throw them in the furnace and threatens them. If we're thrown in, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But they didn't know that. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Even if God does not rescue us, we are not going to compromise on our loyalty and love to him. Pretty amazing statement. But you know what you have that they don't? is the Spirit of God living within you who will never leave you. Do you understand that when you choose to follow Jesus, distinct and different from every other religion out there and every other religious teaching, God himself comes and lives inside of you. The Holy Spirit is not Casper the Friendly Ghost. He is not an it. He's not, you know, this entity. He is the Spirit of Jesus. He is God. God himself lives with you. So this is what you can take to the bank. When you step into the furnace, you never go in there alone. Ever. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Not my words, God's words. Even when you can't see him. Even when you don't see his work, even when it feels profoundly lonely, even when it seems like no one understands, even when you look around and you go, this furnace is really hot and God is not here, he is. This God goes with you into the furnace and this God has gone into the ultimate furnace and defeated it and risen back to life. That's hope for the future, and that is hope for now. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Maybe you've heard this story before. It's always been compelling to me. There's a story of this Bible study that heard a sermon not unlike this one and looked at passages not unlike this one where there are a number of passages in Scripture that talk about we're always in God's hands, And it's like he's a silversmith or a goldsmith who is refining us and making us into who he wants us to be. And they thought, how does this work? Well, they had a friend of a friend who was a silversmith, got permission to go watch him at his craft, and he said, sure, come on in and I'll I'll show you what I do. They they showed up, he, he heated up the fire in the furnace, and he began working with the silver, and they noticed that somehow he knew exactly how to refine the silver. So they begin to ask him questions. And they said, well, how do you know when to pull it out of the fire? And he said, well, he said, I, I, it's all about timing. And he said, if I leave it in there too long, it will destroy it. And if I pull it out too early, there are still impurities there, and it's not purified. So they said, okay, great, we get that. How do you know when to pull it out of the furnace? When do you pull it out of the fire? And without hesitation, he looked them in the eye and he said, when I can see my image in it. God does not waste pain. God does not waste furnaces. 
And the reality is, if you are not in a furnace now, aren't you glad you came to church for this next part? You will be. (laughs) Because we live in a world where we will have trouble and not necessarily trouble of our own doing. Sometimes. But we live in a broken world. That this God is in the act of redeeming and repairing and restoring And someday he's going to come back and he's going to set all wrongs right. But until he does, he's still at work now. It is not hang on and, and, you know, somehow we'll get through this. No, it is live out the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to allow God, even when it's difficult, to use the pain and suffering and difficulty and even the injustice of what happens to you to make you into his image. So as we prepare to respond in music worship, the question I would leave with you is this. Whose image are you living out this morning? Who are you representing by how you live your life? Because this God has said, regardless of what happens to you, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. I face the fury and the fire of the furnace with you, always. Jesus, thank you that as the one true God, you come to us in the middle of the furnace, even when we don't see you, even when we don't feel you, even when it feels like we can't go on, even when it feels like you're not doing anything, even when we question the promises that you give us, you're still faithful. You still do exactly what you said you would do. God, thank you that you are calling forth our true image every day. You are calling us to live out our true identity, and that is our identity in you. Help us to not settle for brokenness in our lives, but to believe you and to take you at your word that trusting you and obeying you is better because you want to bless us, because you want us to have the very life that we look to those things that we elevate to a place they shouldn't be. So God, expose those things so that we can return to you and thank you that we are never alone. Thank you that you're always with us, the God of the furnace, the God of promise. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.